Well, tonight we come back to this exposition that we began this morning in the book of the prophet Micah. And uh, we have here this, this striking language that Micah uses all throughout. And it's kind of interesting how it somewhat parallels what we see in our society. When, when you talk about a prophet... Uh, it's interesting how people portray uh, religiously zealous people in movies and in popular culture. It's the bearded, scruffy guy that holding up a sign saying, the end is at hand. And it's almost a, a, a trope, a, a meme that, that people mock. But what's interesting is that the prophet Micah might well fit that description. Chapter 1, we saw... An interesting description of his relation or his reaction to God's coming judgment. He laments like a screaming jackal and mourning ostrich. As I said, I have no idea what a mourning ostrich sounds like, but I'm sure it's a terrifying sound. And as all we as we all sit in our relatively comfortable pews this evening, we might be tempted to think, yeah, Micah, he'd be fun at parties. And we roll our eyes. Another prophetic statement. But have you ever asked yourself, what motivates prophets like Micah to do the things that they do? Why do we have this vivid prophetic language that's there? Have you ever been desperate to communicate something? And you'll do whatever it takes to get the message across. And sometimes when I'm up preaching, I get dry. And I try and do like hand signals, like, you know, to, to my deacons to have them go. And I'm, I'm running out of energy here. I, I do have some, so that's not a fake hand signal. But there's a sense when, when something's urgent, we want to use whatever we can to get people's attention. As one author has put it, when people are nearly blind, we increase the font size. This is very true for me, by the way. Uh, if you look at my sermons from 2008, there's their 12-point font, and now I'm at to 16-point font. Right? But when people are nearly blind, we increase the font size. When people are nearly deaf, we turn up the volume. When people are mentally handicapped, we use visuals. The audience of prophetic language was sometimes blind, sometimes deaf, and often mentally handicapped. So that's one of the reasons why we see this figurative language. Employed. It's there to communicate more effectively the truth about God's purposes. In other words, the medium and the message were adjusted to fit the need. Now, when you see the state of Judah in our passage, as described in our text this evening, you might start to have some real sympathy for Micah, who cared enough to howl over and to mourn over the sinful people that he was prophesying Against, as he prophesied, literally as he prophesied their doom. And I think it's really important that we see Micah here as an empathetic prophet. He's mourning. He's not, he's not declaring it angrily against them. He's mourning over Jerusalem. And he is howling over it. And as we'll see later on, this is not some self-righteous, self-satisfied individual. Mike is not saying, I'm awesome, and I've done all the things right, and you guys are evil. As we'll see later on in chapter 7, Micah is well aware of his own sin, 
and he confronts him. And if you're with us next Sunday morning, you'll see it. It's, it's, it, it does it in a very gutsy way. And a really, I think, helpful way as we confront our own sin in our lives. He provides a real model for us. In fact, by the end of the book, I hope you'll see that Micah is one of the sanest people in Jerusalem. Tonight we're going to start looking at the second major section of Micah, which begins in chapter 3. And as we said in the morning, Micah can be divided into three major sections, all beginning with the statement here. Uh, And that is exactly what he says in verse 1 there. I said, here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of Micah. And tonight we're going to look at this section. section. And again, we'll see the two aspects of Micah's prophecy. We'll see the pattern of judgment and salvation. And we see this in in the different chapter divisions even. In chapter 3, we see the pronouncement of judgment on Israel's leaders. We spoke a little bit about this this morning. For their sinful perversions of teaching and preaching. And then, but we'll see that in chapter 4, this leads to a, 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 this judgment leads to the hope of peace from God. And in chapter 5, we'll see the promise that it's the heart of that hope of peace. The good shepherd king. That famous passage that you often hear quoted around Christmas time of the blessed Bethlehem of Epaphra. So those will be our headings for this evening. First, judgment on Israel's leaders, chapter 3. Second, the hope of peace from God, chapter 4. And the promise of the shepherd king in chapter 5. Let's get into this. Let's look at chapter 3, the judgment on Israel's leaders. At the close of chapter 2, we saw the image of God's messianic figure as a shepherd who breaks the bonds on his people. Sadly, however, one of the bonds we see here in chapter 3 is enacted by the very people who are supposed to be leading and protecting them. Jerusalem has been ruined by poor leadership. And the imagery is very vivid here. It's visceral. He says, here you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You should know these things. You who hate the good and love the evil, exact opposite, who tear the flesh, who tear the skin off from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin off from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like piece meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Do you get the visual picture? (laughs) This is not a positive view of Israel, Jerusalem's leadership. In fact, what is Micah describing here? He's describing them as cannibals. He's calling them cannibals. That's how bad it has become. That's how violently unjust it was to live in Jerusalem of the day. Can you imagine that on a little brochure describing, a little travel brochure for Jerusalem? Yeah, come down and visit the great capital of Jerusalem. Come live here. We're going to chop you up like meat in a pot. Sounds like a great place and cook you up on a cauldron. But that's how the leadership of Jerusalem is depicted. They're the ones who are supposed to know. He says, you're the one who are supposed to know justice. Now, this isn't just some passing acquaintance 
with the law. Or an app on the phone that you can search through. No, there's supposed to be a preoccupied concern, a close interest, a protective care. It's supposed to be in their bones. But these leaders are just interested in eating your bones. That's what he's saying. Now Isaiah, who we mentioned, is one of Micah's contemporaries, defines justice this way. In Isaiah 1, 17, he says, It is to correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless, to plead the widow's cause. And that's the very opposite of men who love evil and hate good. Again, we might be tempted to think, yes, that's the old corrupt leaders in, in, in Judah. But let me ask you something. Are our leaders much better? In Canada, we have seen our leadership reversing uh, all of the, 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 the basis of our English common law, which has found the, 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 the Justice Foundation in Canada. We've seen a major revolution in the last 30 years. We've started to see our courts declare as good what the Bible clearly says is evil. We have leaders and politicians of every stripe saying that they will preserve the right of the mothers to have their unborn children murdered for the sake of a lifestyle freedom. And I know that it's not just Canada that's in this situation. In Barbados, you've had a similar law on the books even longer than we have in Canada. Since 1983, with the Medical Termination of Pregnancy Act. I also heard this year that Barbados held its first pride parade. It's parading sin and calling it good. Calling it freedom. Sound familiar? Mike is not so far from us. But what's the consequence for the sin? Well, we see it in verse 4, even more the terrifying result. Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. What a terrifying statement. Micah promises that these so-called religious leaders will find no hope or answer if they turn to God in desperation. What a judgment. But these are the ones that are entrusted with caring for the people. The Bible is very clear about the responsibility for those of us who have responsibility to lead God's people. And if we led them astray, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around our neck. James says, Do not all of you presume to be teachers, for you will be judged more harshly. And this is what we see here. John Calvin summarizes it well when he says, Thus Micah confronts us here with the greatest evil that could ever befall us. That is, that God rejects those who reject Him. And that God refuses to answer them so that all their prayers are in vain and are no longer received by God. But it's not just the, the, the failure of the civil government being corrupted. It's the corruption of the prophets themselves. Look at what he says there in verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry shalom or peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. God here is prosecuting those who claim to speak in his name. 
They prophesy according to what they put in their mouth. Again, this is literally where the, the, their God is their stomach, not their people. They are prophets for profit. They are well fed. They declare peace. If they are hungry, they wage their own holy war. They use their office. They manipulate God's people. Does this remind you of anyone in the Old Testament? It's not the first time that this has happened in Israel. If you remember, or if you know, in 1 Samuel, the prophet Eli, the, the judge, actually, Eli, back in 1 Samuel. Remember his sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They were corrupt priests who would steal the very food being offered for sacrifice. And they would threaten and beat those who didn't give them what they wanted. They literally did this. Well, let's not kid ourselves. There are Hophni and Phineases that exist in our world today. People do religion for profit. This is wickedness. Especially those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. There was a science fiction writer who once said, you don't get rich writing science fiction. If you want to get rich, you start a religion. That science fiction writer was named L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. Tom Cruise's religion. But it's not just cults. Churches do this as well. Preachers profit off the poor, bilking them into sending their money and promising that they sow a seed, they'll give them a prayer cloth or some, some token just so they can line their own pockets. Now notice the consequential word, thus. That ought to give us hope because there is justice. When we see this, this corruption, perhaps you've experienced corruption in your own life and Sometimes there's a feeling of helplessness. Like, how do we, how do we even address this? If, if the people, if the rulers are supposed to be uh, the ones caring for us and they're not doing this, if the, if the church is corrupt, what do we do? We cry out to God. And God sees this. What then is their consequence? Well, the consequence there is very clear. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision. And darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer with God. Now, some read this and and you might be reading this and saying, well, wait a second. Is Micah saying that divination and seers, which is using the occult and mediums are okay here? That was something that the law of God totally forbade back in Deuteronomy 18, 9 to 14. No sorcerers, no fortune tellers, no seers, no divinators. Now, Micah's point here is no matter what method you employ, righteous or unrighteous, the point is you will not get any results. It won't work because God in judgment will withdraw his word. It's one of the things we said this morning. When churches stop preaching the gospel, and by the gospel, I mean the whole gospel, the bad news, the bad news that we're sinners, and the good news of Jesus Christ. That's actually a judgment. 
Some of you know what it's like to search for a church where the full gospel is being preached. It's a rare thing. It's a treasure. It's a blessing. The worst thing that God can do to a nation is to remove gospel preaching. Because if there's gospel preaching, there's an opportunity for repentance. There's an opportunity for re-engagement with God in His mercy and His grace. But this is what Mike is threatening, is that the Word of God will be removed from Israel. You might think about this a little bit more. Could God withdraw His Word today? I mean, when you look at it, we have millions of Bibles. Right? We have the internet and all of that. How might God judge us today? Maybe he has it taken away. It's interesting to talk to people in this generation now who've grown up without, I think, the broader influence of the church in culture. Many of them have no clue what's really in the Bible. They listen to late night talk shows and look at memes on the internet and they may have some sort of, you know, like cultural awareness of some of these things, but that's about it. They can tell you what the latest is with Rihanna or whatever celebrity is of the moment, but they can tell you nothing about the gospel. In case that's not your thing, how many of us know more about movies than we know about the Bible? How many of us can tell us any a number of subjects? But when it comes to scripture, we turn up empty. God, in his grace, provides preachers of the word. That's one of the ways that we see the mercy of God. Is that there are those who will come and bring the word. Right? We quoted this morning from Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Micah here is a faithful preacher. Look at verse 8. He says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by the way, of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Pastor is not a faithful pastor. A prophet is not a faithful prophet if he does not do what the scriptures say, which is to call people to repentance and faith. There's so much in scripture about sin. I have a relative who is in a liberal church, and I went to visit her, and she had Robert Schuller's Possibility Thinker's Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard of Robert Schuller in the Crystal Cathedral in the United States. He is famous for being very, very positive, never talking about sin. And he's created this Bible, and he highlights uh, the passages that his faithful people are to read. And he just, you know, maybe a verse here or two. It's very interesting to go through that Bible and see what's highlighted. You look in the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of blank. <laughs> a whole lot of blank. Even in the New Testament, Jesus is decrying against the Pharisees a whole lot of blank. Right? Because they don't want to confront the, the reality, the fullness. The Bible isn't just the New Testament. My dad teases people that come to our church that have, just have a New Testament. He's like, you got a dagger. You need a sword, man. You need the full thing. Right? We need the full word of God. We need the good news and the bad news together. We need to see this. There's something positive 
in understanding the negative side of things. The fact that there is a God of justice. There's something that we actually yearn for in our hearts. True justice. That's why we're attracted to good things. And the reality is, even this world yearns for justice. I may have told you this story before, but my old professor of counseling was taking a flight to uh, Los Angeles. He got on a plane and he ended up sitting next to a woman who managed a woman's shelter. She heard that he was a Presbyterian minister. She says, you're not one of those Presbyterian ministers that believe in hell, are you? And he said, well, actually, yes, I am. And he said, I think you should too. And she said, what? What do you mean? I'm an enlightened person. I don't believe in this God of wrath. He said, Madam, you manage a woman's shelter. Do you see men get away with murdering their wives? Beating them? Sexually abusing them? And she had to admit, yes, she did. He said, the God of hell is a God who believes that those men must come to judgment. They may escape judgment on this earth. They may work the system, but they will not escape the justice of God. And he had a beautiful opportunity to share the gospel with her, to show her that, yes, justice is something that is, when it's properly executed by a holy God, a beautiful thing. There is justice and there is balance. That's why, you know, Canada, when it was founded, was founded on the principles of peace, order, and good government. It's a refrain in our Constitution. Peace, order, and good government. Because people thrive in peace when they know that there is a strong authority. Canada didn't have a Wild West like the Americans. We sent the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Mounties, you know, the guys in the red shirts out there, and established law and order. That's one of the principles that our, our country sought to do. Is they, We sent out the, the law, and then we established the, the, the settlements afterwards. And it's something that it gives peace and allows things to prosper when there is justice and peace. So I don't want you to think when, when he's calling out for justice that this is something that's negative. It's something that we all yearn for in our hearts. That's why we're attracted to these things, good things. In verses 9 to 12, Micah delineates the crimes he says, hear this, you heads of houses of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, you test justice, make crooked all that is straight, and build Zion with blood, and uh, Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. It's a very interesting statement that he makes there in verse 11. It's almost sarcastic. They lean upon Yahweh. They lean on their own interpretation of promises. He quotes them here. He says, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Where did they get this? Well, this is in the Bible. They're quoting the Bible. Is not the Lord in the midst of us? Is a quotation from 1 Kings chapter 6, 12 and 13. They had chapter and verse. Except they ignored the conditions. They focus on the promise. Let's just take a look at that for a second. This is what what we see unfaithful men doing all the time. Right? You've heard it all. I have a promise. God has a plan. A plan to prosper you. Right? They take the scriptures and they twist it. And they make it something that is not in its context. 
Look at what it says in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. It says this. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel and dwell within the midst of them. Yes, but wait a second. There are some conditions. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. Right? A a text without a context is a pretext for error. (laughs) It's what's happening today. We see people pull out these verses here. This is what, honestly, this is what Satan does. (laughs) Right? This is what Satan does when he's tempting Jesus. He says, you know, you will not let your foot be cast down. You will not stumble. The context of that in the the psalm is the judgment against Satan himself. But he he omits that part. (laughs) He just ignores that part. That's not important. This is why, one of the reasons why we have expositional preaching. We preach word of God in its fullness, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We let it be the focus and the point because we can wrongly interpret just not by preaching the word, the whole word of God. God here in verse 12 of chapter 3 promises to tear down the city that bears his name and the temple where he dwelt, all because of the sin of his people. This judgment is total and complete. Temple and town will be reduced to absolute ruin. And guess what? The word of God proves true. This is exactly what happened. It was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And then it was destroyed finally again in AD 70. But it's interesting, isn't it? There's some historical context here. That last verse of chapter 3 says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. This verse has an interesting heritage. You can't leave it without noting how it was used in Micah's time and how it was saved the skin of the prophet Jeremiah a hundred years later. All of this we find in Jeremiah chapter 26. Turn over Jeremiah. Just a note. Uh, the order of the books of the Bible are not chronological. Jeremiah comes a hundred years after Micah, but in the Bible it comes uh, before it. Jeremiah 26, we see Jeremiah doing the same thing that Micah did. He is decrying the wickedness of uh, uh, of Israel and its leaders. Jeremiah prophesied that both the temple and the city would be laid in ruins. And guess what? It wasn't popular. It wasn't popular. The clergy, the leaders at the time, did not appreciate Jeremiah's prophecy and considered it unpatriotic, un-American, and irreligious. And they wanted to kill him. They wanted to make Israel great again by killing this one who threatened them. But the elders pressed an argument that turned the tide. A hundred years earlier, Micah of Morasheth had preached the same message. Look at uh, Jeremiah 26, 18 to 19. It says, 
<clears throat> Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And they say this, Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. Isn't this fascinating? Here. We see some of the history that's not recorded in the book of Micah. Sometimes we we see the prophecy, but we actually don't know the results. But here, looking at Jeremiah, we see what the result of Micah's prophecy was. King Hezekiah heard it and he repented. And guess what? The Lord relented of the destruction. He delayed it. It did ultimately come because Israel's repentance was was ultimately a false repentance, a temporary repentance. was not consistent. They didn't return after Hezekiah. They continued to get worse and worse and worse. But God is a gracious God. And as we hear these pronouncements of judgment, as as we're convicted by our sin, and we need to be convicted by our sin, we're too blasé about our sin. We're too casual about it. We don't see it for the the cancer that it is rotting inside us. The great Puritan preacher John Owen said, Be killing sin, lest it kill you. But God is gracious. And as we hear the word... It's important that we actually hear the word. It's not enough to have it go in one ear and out the other. If we are true Christians, then we are obedient to the word of God. Even when we don't want to hear what's being said. We need to hear. We need to invite this kind of criticism. And we invite the kind of criticism that the Bible reads. When you read the Bible, I really hate the term quiet time. Sometimes you ought to be mourning like ostriches over your own sin. Right? We're not having our little quiet time over here. At times, I hope that as you read the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and causes you to cry out to Him for mercy. The Word of God speaks to us and confronts us. And what will you do when you're confronted with the awful ugliness of your own sin? I'm not just talking to unbelievers here. I'm talking to believers. What do you do? Do you actually welcome it? One of the reasons why we don't read the word of God is sometimes we don't want to hear what it has to say. We don't want to come under its conviction. Do you invite sanctification into your life? number of you that have had the joy of being married recently. Maybe not so recently, some of you. Let me ask you something. Husbands and wives, do you make yourself spiritually vulnerable to each other? I am no paragon of virtue, and I know it. And part of the reason I know it is because my wife tells me so. In fact, I invite my wife to te- speak to me about my sin. In fact, we go on dates, and sometimes one of the things that we'll do, our dates aren't just to have a nice meal together and have a nice time to each- with each other, but it's also to do a spiritual checkup. 
say, honey, are the things that you see that I am not doing that I ought to do? You need to create those opportunities for communication and accountability. And here's the other thing. You don't have to be married to do that. Single people. Develop relationships with others in the congregation of Jesus Christ. People that you can talk to. And invite them into your life. Talk to them about your sin. So that you can build accountability and encouragement with each other. To have people speak truth into your lives. My closest friends are ultimately those friends that have spoken truth to me. This is the biblical foundation for friendship. I've mentioned this before. My favorite proverb is, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Chomp on that one. Profound. Profuse, sorry. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? Contrasted with the kisses of an enemy. We live in a, in a world of Facebook likes. Right? Friendship is based on affirming everything that you do. Real friends tell you, Chris, you're off your rocker. What are you doing? What are you doing? We have to have that kind of real transparency with each other. I don't mean being rude or um, foolish with each other, but caring enough to say something. Hey, brother, the way that you talk to your wife, I I, I love you, brother, but I I think that you're not being loving to your wife in this situation if you hear that kind of speech. We need to invite that accountability. Don't talk to me about me. That's me and my... No. We are Christians. We are called to account to the Word of God. And if you see things that your brothers and sisters are doing that are not in line with the Scriptures... You are your brother's keeper. Right? Remember Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. You are. You're a family. Right? If you're a parent and you see your child not doing anything, uh, or you see your child disobeying, you don't do anything, are you loving your child? Now, we're not called to parent one another. But we are called to be brothers and sisters. Believe me, I have a sister and a brother and I have four kids. We have interaction and conflict all the time. And conflict is not necessarily bad. Conflict is actually an opportunity for growth. The conflict is because I'm doing something wrong, then I have an opportunity to grow. If the conflict is because somebody else is doing something wrong, it's an opportunity for them to grow and for us to grow closer together. Because if somebody loves you to say something that you don't want to hear, but says it to you anyway because you, they think that you need to hear it, even if it breaks your relationship, that's love. And we want to invite that into our lives. So how do you receive the word of God? Will you respond faithfully like Hezekiah? Will you humbly submit to the word of God no matter what it means when it's applied to you? If you're a believer this evening, this book is not some ordinary book. It's not like a textbook. It's not like a systematic theology. It's not like a book of biology and all of these things. No, it is the inspired, authoritative, inerrant Word of God. And it must be submitted to. Hebrews 4 describes its power. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Look at how it penetrates to the inner core. The Word of God doesn't mince. I love the Word of God because it doesn't 
create any sort of illusion about who we are. The greatest king in Israel was a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And he knew it. And he wrote amazing psalms of repentance and faith. It's a beautiful book. There's no varnishing over the evil in man. It exposes it clearly. God holds us accountable by judgment through his word. But Mike is more than judgment. Chapter 4 shows us the hope of peace from God. This is the glory of God's word. We have the promise of more. And chapter 3 speaks of the ruin of Jerusalem. But chapter 4 speaks of the resurrection of Jerusalem. Look what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and its people shall flow and people shall flow to it. That's interesting. You read some commentators, some liberal commentators on this, this passage and they have a problem at this point. They say, well, wait a second. Didn't he destro- declare its destruction in chapter 4? This must have been inserted later. Some, some scribe thought, oh, it's kind of kind of sad here. I need a little happy passage. So, you know, we'll put in a happy passage. Utterly ridiculous. They're not paying any attention to what it says. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Okay? He's giving them hope. It's coming. This is one of the problems that we have with a lot of Old Testament criticism. They chop up the text like cannibals, but they miss the key phrase, the heart of it, in the latter days. This is a prophetic speaking of the future. Even as he declares justice, and even as he declares judgment in the present day, he says there will be a death. See, this is God's grace. Salvation and judgment. And Jerusalem here is pictured beautifully as a high mountain among foothills. And it has a magnetic attraction to the nations. And it's very interesting. It's very opposite to what you, what you would think of a mountain. The mountain, you think, you know, things flow down. The streams flow down. But it's the reverse here. The Gentiles flow up into it. It's impossible for a stream to flow upwards. It goes against gravity. It's a supernatural work. And it's the highest mountain. It peaks over everything on the horizon. It dominates. And in these days, not only does God's word go forth, but God himself acts. Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. God is going to judge. That's the good news. This is what Psalm 96 celebrates when it promises that God will judge the peoples with equity. And God says here that God will impose his justice on the nations, even if they're strong, even if they're superpowers and control them, they're a long way off, nations far away, God will control all nations. And we have that famous statement. Oh, it's interesting. What Bible verses people pluck out and that get lionized in our culture. That famous statement that is quoted in almost every speech about peace. If anybody ever quotes the Bible and they, they talk about peace, they quote this, this section. They lift this little verse, 3 and 4, and they say, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. The A part of that verse is kind of left off. And then he says, 
And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. There's a monument in New York outside the United Nations that has this very text on it. Right? But it's very, very important that again, we look at the context. Because the sequence is vital for our proper interpretation. The verb form here is future. They shall beat is clearly related to the two preceding verbs. He shall judge and he shall decide in verse 3. Right? He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. In spite of what the politicians may say to you when they quote only the last half of this verse, actual universal peace does not come because nations turn against war in disgust or the United Nations eventually accomplishes its goal of world peace. Right? No. He shall judge and they shall beat. That is a consequence. It's a response to divine intervention. Divine intervention brings about international pacification. People and nations do not produce the state of affairs by their own efforts, their brilliance, or their humility, or their exhaustion. It's God that affects it. It's God that initiates it. It's God that it accomplishes it. It's God that imposes His just rule. And because of that, the nations exist in peace. And look at how he does it. He says, the lame. He's going to turn the lame into a remnant. This is classic God, isn't it? Right? He doesn't work through the great rulers of the earth. Jesus is born in a stable, not in a, not, not in a, a, a palace room. This is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He takes the lame. The nothings. The nobodies. And he turns them into his people. Verse 7. In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame. And gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. And those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. Not just a few stragglers. The parallel verse here in verse 7 says they will be a strong nation and they will thrive. They will thrive. But this complete reversal is all because people figured out that war was bad and put down their, their arms? No. It's all because God imposed it. It's God's initiative. It's God that affects real and lasting change. Now, I know last year you guys had a historic election here in Barbados. The government won in a landslide with promises to clear up the corruption and make all things new. Right? Right? And perhaps, perhaps, in fairness, some things are better. But I think that we can all say that things are far, far from perfect. I'm not saying that your government is useless or ineffective, 
But it is nothing in comparison to God. When God comes, there will be no questions. All things will be made right. John speaks of this in his prophetic vision of heaven in Revelation 22. He says this in the name of Christ. He says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. Jesus will come as judge and he will judge perfectly and rightly and wisely. And immediately peace will come. Why? Because the king, the once and future king is here. And that is what chapter five is all about. That is the the wonderful promise of a savior king. And this is really the theological heart of the prophet's prophecy, the book of Micah. Perhaps another one of those ones that you're familiar with in Micah. It's what the whole book has been building towards. It's the greatest prophetic revelation of the book. It is the messianic prophecy of Jesus Christ. The birth of Jesus Christ. There are some important prophecies that we've already come across in this book. Chapter 1 speaks of the invasions of the Assyrians under Sennacherib. This hadn't happened at Micah's time. But it did happen. But the critics are like, oh well. You know, we don't know exactly when Micah wrote this. He probably just added that bit in. You know, added in a few few prophecies to, to grant himself credibility. Right? They also reject uh, another prophecy that's there in chapter 4 and verse 10 where he prophesies about the Babylonian captivity. Which, by the way, isn't going to happen for another hundred years when he writes it. But again, the skeptics and the liberals say it was just inserted in the text. But here's the thing. You cannot argue with Micah 5 verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. What is this prophecy? Well, it's a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Messiah's birth 700 years before it happened. And here's where the liberals and the skeptics have a bit of a problem. Because there are copies of the book of Micah that predate these things. Dated well before the time of Jesus Christ. It was so well known that King Herod's scholars tell him when they're looking for the birthplace of the Messiah. It had to be written down in Bethlehem. They they said it has to be in Bethlehem. Matthew 2, verse 5 says this. They told him, Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Everybody knew it. It is incontrovertible. This 700-year-old prophecy was there. It's on the books. And it came true. I love it when the skeptics have no answer. And they really don't have one here. Of course, prophecies in chapter 1 and chapter 4 are prophecies I believe. And they were predictive. And they came true. But I delight in this one because it's so well recorded historically. It's a hard thing for the skeptics to account for. I'm sure they try. But they fail. And Micah has this glorious prophecy. He promises Israel and Judah that they will one day be ruled by a righteous king. 
This is a great messianic prophecy. And we just look at what it says about this Jesus, this future Messiah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So we, we, we first of all we, we see that, that this prophecy is about a king who will come from Bethlehem. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Very clear, the hometown of King David. But interesting, notice how it describes him, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. What does that mean? How can Jesus, how can the Messiah be from of old, from ancient times? Isn't it a new baby that will be born in Bethlehem of Bethlehem? Aha! But here we have the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ. Christ is God, and he existed eternally before he was incarnated. And here we have it in Micah's prophecy. He says he was there, the ancient of old. He was, he was coming forth it's from of old, from ancient days. Comes from long before. And he, is, he will be a divine and eternal king. He will also be a human king. Here's a great Christology in Micah here. How do we know that he will be a human king? Well, he says it. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time, verse 3, when she who is in labor has given birth. That means he will be human. He will be born of a woman. Born under the law. Right? In order to deliver his people. And he will impact the entire world. It says his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. It's such a clear prophecy in the Old Testament. Of Jesus Christ. And he will bring peace to their people. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Prince of Peace. Shalom. Jesus says. He will be their peace. What a king. What a ruler. And there's only one. That fits this description. Only one in the scriptures that can. Jesus Christ. The God man. Micah here then promises that a righteous leader would come. And he, he calls him a great shepherd and a great king. And those two promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because doesn't Jesus describe himself? We look at John chapter 10 in this way. John chapter 10 and verse 7. He says this. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. The thief comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. I come, came, that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and, I'm a, and I lay down 
my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So again, we see Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the good shepherd. The one who gathers the sheep. And even those sheep that are of the other flock, of the Gentiles. He unites together. He brings together God's people. And it's a beautiful thing for us to contemplate and to think about. To meditate on. That that Jesus is the fulfillment of Micah's great prophecy. That he is the great shepherd and the great king. Should provide us comfort in a time when we lack righteous leadership. When we lack men who are faithful to lead our nations. When we, lead, when we lack, even some of us, sometimes we, we struggle as we look at the church. God is in control. God is sovereign. And he has sent his son, Jesus Christ. And he will preserve his church. And while we should pray for our leaders and seek righteous people to rule over us, both in civil and church situations... We must always remember that our real hope is not that Barbados will be great again. It will be that Jesus Christ and his name will be glorified. That his name will resound evermore. And we need to understand that our only satisfaction will come by looking to the good shepherd, to looking to the savior. When I went to the United States, one of the things that shocked my Canadian sensibilities, one of my culture shocks, was to listen to talk radio to Rush Limbaugh. I remember listening to he can say that on the radio? Coming from a more socialist background in the, in, the, in, in the Canadian country. But what I realized is that no matter who was in office, they were always complaining, always angry. There was never a satisfaction to be had. There's always corruption. There's always a problem. There's always something to criticize. But there won't be under the rulership of Jesus Christ. It will be a perfect good. Political and religious leaders too often refer to evil as good. And this can lead to great despair in Christians. I must confess to you, as I look at our political system in Canada, I am discouraged. I am very discouraged. I don't even know who to vote for. I believe that I have a responsibility to vote. I believe that I have a responsibility to be salt and light in the earth. But I find it very difficult to find anybody that is worthy of the confidence of a Christian. And it's frustrating. And I pray, and we pray as a church, for the leadership, for the Prime Minister of Canada, that God would convert him and convert our mayor and our premier, so it's our governor, if you want to think of it that way. And I believe that this is right. But they will never be Jesus Christ. That will never be where my hopes rest. Our hopes must rest in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And in this way, we are very much like the people that Micah is speaking to. They were waiting for the ruler to come. We're waiting for him to come again. They were waiting for him to come. We have the blessing. They could only anticipate. And they've read these prophecies. But but we know that he's come. Jesus has come. He has come down. He has been incarnated. Born of Mary. Lived 33 years. Lived a righteous, sinless life. 
died a sinless death to turn away the wrath of God. And he's coming back. Are you ready for his return? He is a kind and gracious king. He's a holy God. When you think of heaven, what do you think? Do you think it's all going to be meeting old people, hanging out with the Apostle Paul? Not having sickness? Maybe you think, well, maybe we can fly. Jesus walked through walls. The kind of things that we think about when we think about heaven. But you know what heaven really is? It's being with Jesus. Full stop. It's being with Jesus. John Piper often talks about Christians who have a, a, a vision of heaven that's pretty much a Muslim heaven, right? Where we have, you know, splendor, paradise, and we have everything that we want, and everything, everything there. We have no needs, no wants, and everything else. But a Christian view of heaven is actually to be with Jesus Christ. Do you have a desire to be with Jesus Christ? That doesn't just start when you die and you go to heaven. It starts right now. When we come on the Lord's Day to worship together, we are experiencing the fellowship and the encouragement of Jesus Christ. Does your heart burn within you? Oh, I want to gather with the people of God to worship, to praise, to delight in God, to hear His Word, to, to, to come under its authority, that it would change me, that it would shape me more and more, that I might be more like Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to be like Jesus Christ. To follow after Jesus Christ. But to do that, we need to be confronted with our sin. We need to see that God is a just judge. We need to understand His judgment so that we can understand His mercy and His grace. And this is the mercy and the grace that is offered to us this evening. That Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this. The Good Shepherd has come. He is real. And He's reigning eternally at the right hand of God right now. Your salvation is secure. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Neither height nor depth. Nor anything else in all creation. As Paul goes on in Romans chapter 8. It's a wonderful and a blessed thing. But it's a full orb thing. Because part of coming closer to God. Is coming in confrontation with your sin. We look at how the prophet Isaiah comes before God and he's brought his glorious vision of the temple in Isaiah 6. And he cries out, he cries out, I'm a man of unclean lips. He he cannot come into the holiness of God. And a cherubim comes and takes a coal from the altar and and cauterizes his lips, burns them off, makes them holy, sanctifies him, literally, in 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 the context of that. And then he delights in the presence of God. We need that too. We need the cauterizing effect of the word of God on our hearts. We need not to dismiss sin lightly. We must take it for the serious cancer that it is, that it eats away. It robs us of our joy in Jesus Christ. It robs us of so much. For what? For things that spoil, perish, and fade. Things that only bring shame upon our hearts. Jesus Christ is so much better. He's so much sweeter. He's so much more wonderful. He is the wonderful counselor. He's the prince of peace. He is the savior of the world. If you know Jesus Christ tonight, look to him. Rejoice in him. Delight in his word. Let it wash over your lives. Meditate on it. 
Go after those hard passages. Oh, I don't want to read Revelation too hard. No, Revelation is gorgeous. It's wonderful. It speaks of the glory and the triumph of Jesus Christ. Spend time, marinate on it. Go to Leviticus. Oh, Leviticus. Are you telling me Leviticus? Oh, Leviticus speaks of Christ beautifully through all the sacrifices, the grain offering, the wave offering, the burnt offering. All those are picturing aspects of Christ's redemption and its fulfillment. It's beautiful. Look at it. Study it. Delight in it. Delight in his law. The longest chapter in the Bible. Psalm 119 is delighting in the law of God. It is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. It helps us to run in the pathway of his commandments. It's a delight. And it's relational because our God is relational. The reason why he speaks these things is because he cares. If you don't say something to somebody, it's because they don't often merit your time and your attention. It's like when I look at Facebook sometimes. I I start typing. I'm like, why am I typing this? Why? Is this really going to serve any purpose? Delete. Right? I'd rather talk to a person face to face and invest in that person. If I love them, then I'll spend the time and the energy. God shows his love in speaking the truth. God shows his grace and mercy by first exposing sin and then pointing to the solution, Jesus Christ. May we all hear the words of the prophet Micah. May he speak to our hearts. Amen.